This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Check this out. It is free. No, I'm serious. It's free, 100%. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor then distributes that podcast for you, and you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from that podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you like what we have going on here, make sure that you support the people that support us. Go to shop.lowerafterhours.com for all your clothing needs. Again, find that at shop.lourafterhours.com. Want to see a real velociraptor dribbling the basketball? Go to shop.lowerafterhours.com. Do you have a sarcastic friend in your group named Jeff? Then go to shop.lowerafterhours.com and find them the perfect gift. Welcome back to another edition of Lauer After Hours. As a limited fake Mike Ryan fan account just said, we are thrilled to be joined this week with none other than the animal doctor who's not an animal doctor, <laughs> one Mr. Ron McGill. I need everybody to welcome Ron McGill for me. That's well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Um, uh, we, we are really thrilled to have you. Um, obviously, you are a listener favorite, a fan favorite of the Libertard Show universe. Um, and uh, for all of your animal knowledge, but uh, I wanted to kind of start off real quick by, by um, mentioning another recent accolade of yours. You just won a photography uh, award, I believe. I, I saw the photo online you shared. It was a, uh, a pheasant of some sort. Am, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, it's an Argus pheasant. The greater Argus pheasant uh, was the National Wildlife uh, Association, their national, international photo contest. So I was, I was pretty big. I was very, very surprised, very pleasantly pleased with that whole thing. Um, yeah, that pheasant was kind of, you know, he's asking the girlfriend out for a date. They go through this incredible <laughs> routine where they do this strut and stuff. And then he does this thing with his feathers where he kind of covers over his face and he looks between his wings like this with all these eyes and stuff. It's like a split second thing. I was just, 
I was actually really lucky to get the shot. It's not much skill involved. That was a luck shot, and I'm really happy to have won the award. Well, it was it was absolutely gorgeous. And where where was that pheasant? Where were you at when you took it? Well, I was actually in the aviary at the zoo here in Miami. Uh, we okay. have a huge aviary. We have, we have the largest uh, Southeast Asian free flight aviary uh, in the Western Hemisphere. It's over you know 400 birds in there, 75 different species, all flying free, 60 feet high. It's huge. Uh, but you know during springtime. Everybody uh, is looking for a little love there, and that uh, male pheasant uh, was not to, to, to be left out. Well, it's incredible. If, if uh, anybody listening to this, if you get a chance, go check out Ron's Twitter account. Uh, he, he's got it posted on there. Uh, Ron, we're going to kick it off. I'm going to start throwing it around to people with uh, their questions. First, we're going to start off with Pam. Uh, she's got a question for you. Go ahead, Pam. Hi, Ron. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. This is super exciting. <laughs> So my question is, do dogs have complex enough emotions for spite and passive aggressive behavior? When my dog thinks I've been gone from home too long, like if I do a late work day or if I'm gone on a day I not normally am, like a weekend day, she spite poops. She poops in my bedroom on my rug only. She poops in the bathroom on the bath mat while I'm in the shower. Is that spike pooping, or are they just not that developed? Uh, no, they're pretty developed. And dogs have so many of the emotions that you and I have. Cats will also do that same thing. Cats will start urinating everywhere. They'll start the, they won't use the litter box on purpose uh, just because it, it, it leads to more attention. You know, so that's the, the animal's looking for more attention. If it feels like it has been left out, it's been denied this attention that it feels it deserves, it's going to do what it does to get the attention. Even if it's, if it's a chastising, it's still attention. It's still got your attention, and that's why the animals will do that. Perfect. I knew it. I had someone else tell me they can't, they don't think that way, and she, it's just because you didn't let her out fast enough. No, I yep. knew. I knew it was directed at me. Absolutely, it was. Thank you. You're welcome. Fantastic. All right. Uh, up next, we're going to go to Ant in Brooklyn. Go ahead, Ant. Hi, Ron. This you is Anthony know, in Brooklyn. Thanks for joining us. Um, pleasure. pleasure. So I wanted to talk about what you and Dan were talking about sort of, I think it was last week or maybe the week before about the hippo naming. <laughs> and do you really think, do you have two hippos that you think you can mate and, and spawn a new baby hippo to be named after Dan? Or, or what's, what's your actual thought more exhaustive? We do. We have hippos that we can put together. The problem is a hippo pregnancy, you know, it can be 11 months. So we don't have that much time to wait. So right now I'm in negotiations with the animal science people at the zoo and the veterinary department to say, listen, this hippo that we have originally named Abergine, which means eggplants, okay, because the whole fiasco with Disney and ESPN saying, well, we can't name it Dan because what happens if it kills somebody one day, then we're going to get sued because, uh, you know, Disney employee went crazy. Or what happens if it has cancer and dies horribly? It's just such a bad omen on Disney. Well, you're Disney, so overprotected. Well, now that Dan has basically said, screw you, Disney, he wants to double screw them by saying, okay, now we're going to name this freaking hippo after me. <laughs> so what I'm doing is I'm negotiating right now to say, listen, we can say the hippo's name is Abergine, but let's come up with the stage name of Dan Levitard. We'll call it Dan Levitard. And I told the, the crew at the zoo and the crew at the veterinary team, I said, listen, this is a huge opportunity. There'll be no more famous pygmy hippo on the planet than Absolutely. freaking fat Dan Levitard. Okay, so this is a perfect thing. And I said, Dan is going to donate big time money. Listen, listen, guys, I want to be really frank and honest with you guys. You know, we, we are always busting Dan's balls on things left and right. And he always gets a flack. He's a 
Dan is one of the most generous people you will ever know in your life. I'll tell you guys something that I've never said on the radio and I've never said, and he probably would hate that I said. Dan has written personal checks for tens of thousands of dollars to help conservation at the zoo out of his own pocket. Wow. The first time, the first time I took him and his now wife around the zoo, you know, he was just a friend. I've known Dan for many years as a friend, but his wife Valerie, she just loves animals. Her whole thing is animals. And Dan is one of the most romantic, soft-hearted people you could ever know. You would never think it when you listen to him, but he's such a romantic, soft-hearted person. And he called me up. I don't know how many of you guys are aware of this, but I planned his whole, uh, you know, asking how he's going to marry her, asking her to marry him. He said, he called me up one day and he goes, Ron, I I've never, never cared about a woman like I care about this woman. I need you to plan my engagement. I go, what? He goes, no, I need you to plan my engagement. I go, yeah, what do you, what? this is something you got to plan yourself. He goes, no, I don't have it in me. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a hopeless romantic. I'm kind of a sap. I mean, I really love doing romantic things with my wife. And he always sees what I do with my wife. He goes, I need you to plan something like that for Valerie. But here's the deal. She loved the trip to the zoo. So she was crazy about animals. He goes, and all you kept talking about was, you know, because I've taken my wife to Africa several times. I say how romantic it is, blah, 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 blah. And Dan goes, I want you to plan a trip for me and for Val Africa. That's I go, awesome. Dan, this is, this is not a cheap. He goes, I don't care. I don't care if I have to sell my house. We're doing this the best we can do it. And to make a long story short, Dan probably will never go into this and he's probably going to kill me for even sharing it with you guys. But, you know, you ever hear the movie Out of Africa with Meryl Streep and Robert Redford? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a scene of that movie, Out of Africa, where they're on the top of a hillside, where they have a picnic on the top of the hillside overlooking the African plains, the Maasai Mara. I know exactly where that place is. I know where the movie was made. I know the people who run that whole operation out there. I made the arrangement for Dan to have that hillside privately to himself with Val, with a table with white tablecloth and flowers and the whole nine yards so he could ask her to marry him there. I mean, I, I, we, we, wow. we blew it over the edge. He did, he, did the go, Ron. he did the most romantic thing for her. And I mean, we really made it out of a romance movie. So uh, Dan is really a softy. And then when he got back from that trip, and I'd given him another tour on the zoo, all of a sudden I get a check from him, the first check for $10,000. And I call him up and I'm like in tears. I go, Dan, what are you, what are you doing? He goes, brother, I, there's no price on what you've been able to do for me and for Val and how she loves animals. And I wanna make sure, you know, if it's important to Val, it's important to me. Another thing you don't know about Dan is probably what a softy he is for animals. Dan is, you know, he, he lost a dog. He had a miniature schnauzer. Uh, I had a miniature schnauzer. We, we, you know, we both lost our miniature schnauzers. And it was one of these things where, man, it, I could tell how hard it ripped him up. I mean, it really profoundly ripped him up. It just, to me, it tells me a lot about a person, about the way they react to animals, about how they feel about animals. You know, you hear Dan on the radio, and again, he's going to kill me for telling this to you guys, but... You know, sometimes we have to do these public appearances to promote the show. You know, we have to go, you know, meet us, meet us at, uh, I don't know, the, you know, a hotel on South Beach or something like that. Dan cannot stand those things because Dan really isn't the kind of guy who's comfortable in public. He hates people. It's not that he hates it. He's just very uncomfortable being told, you're great, man. You make me happy. You're just, I love your show. I love it. <laughs> he, 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 he has a hard time giving himself that kind of credit. He really does. Uh, Dan is not only a brilliant radio host, he's, he's one of the most brilliant writers I've ever known in my life. That's when I first met him when he was a columnist in the Miami Herald down here. And uh, 
we just hit it off. But Dan, you know, when we go to these things, he always puts like me and Mike and Stu Gotts and Roy out in front. Okay. So he'll stay in the back corner and he actually uses us kind of like of a buffer because it's not that he doesn't want to meet people that he doesn't, he just doesn't feel like he's worthy of somebody to say, Hey, can I take a picture with you? He just feels uncomfortable with that right, because right. he's genuinely that humble a guy. He, yeah. I, I, I'm not saying this because I'm his friend. I'm his friend because of the way he is. Sure. I don't like bullshit fake people who just get all full of themselves. Trust me. I've done, you know, a lot of television programs around the country. I've met a lot of these celebrities and guys, I promise you when I tell you this, television and radio gives credibility to a lot of people who absolutely don't deserve it. If it wasn't for their writers, if it wasn't for their producers, if it wasn't for the people busting their ass behind the scenes, they would be an absolute piece of garbage. But they come out like they're the greatest things since sliced bread, and I can't stand those people. Dan is the absolute opposite of those people. So now I probably, instead of just answering the question, I probably <laughs> give you way too much more information. Sorry about that. That was no. perfect, Ron. Thank you very much. It's perfect. Uh, Greg Cody is going to be mad that we got all of that inside uh, info <laughs> and he didn't get a chance to report on that. So we, we appreciate you giving us the exclusive, Ron. Um, all right. Up next, we're going to throw it to Lou. Go ahead, Lou. Hello, Ron. Hey, Lou. All right. So I kind of have a, sto a true story that happened to me and my, uh, my wife. Uh, and I have a kind of question at the end. So uh, before we are married, uh, my wife's um, roommate had got a new puppy uh, named Java. It was kind of just one of those, it was a mutt. It's, you know, it grew too big. Its paws were too big and it was just always goofy and running around. It was kind of an indoor dog and an outdoor dog. And I started noticing when I would come home to their house, I would see the dog just sitting there with her food bowl, with his food bowl and a outdoor cat just eating the food. <laughs> and I was like, it's really strange. Like, I can't, like, I don't know what's going on. Cause normally I would assume like the dog would chase it off or the scat, cat would be scared. And so I was like, and I, and I kept, ha it kept happening. I was like, man, what is going on? So I came home one night and I think I figured out what was going on. So we come home, we come up the driveway, the light, the dog is on its back. And I promise this, the kitten or cat was in the dog's nether regions. What I can say is, I would look like it's filleting oh, the dog, no. right? And I'm not kidding you. They both stopped, looked up at us. The cat just ran off, and the dog just stood there kind of like, like, oh, you caught me. So my question is, was there some <laughs> sort of sexual arrangement between the dog and the cat for food? <laughs> Man, I just can't unsee that. Um, oh, my God. So... Listen, there's obviously pleasure being experienced by both uh, there. I will tell you this, as far as the cat eating the dog food, the, the dog has accepted the cat. The cat may have at one time or another established his dominance. I try to tell people this all the time. People have this mistaken impression that, well, dogs know their dogs and they know they can kick a cat's ass. The bottom line is they really don't really know that. Uh, and usually dominance is established from the very beginning which is why you very rarely actually see a dog kill a cat. You might see a dog chase a cat, but more often than not, you'll see dogs avoid cats because they've had an incident where a cat will arch its back and scratch the heck out of that dog or nail that dog real long, and the dog is like, oh my God. You know, they don't realize their size. That goes to the other extreme with small dogs. I call a little small dog complex, it's like little Napoleon complex, okay? Little dogs sometimes get to be really much more aggressive. And they're like, because they got to prove themselves. They learn from an early on time in life, they got to be 
proactive. They got to be out there first. So my suspicion is that the dog, maybe when he first met the cat, came went up to him, the cat scratched him, said, hey, and the dog said, oh, sorry, okay. And they kind of backed off. And then all of a sudden they kind of grew. And I tell this to people all the time who have cats and dogs as pets, you know, like people who start as cat people. I say, well, you know, I'm going to get a dog. I don't know what's going to happen with the pet. I go, listen, you got to let them work it out. Okay. Now, I would never like say, okay, you know, if I got a Great Dane, uh, I don't want to put him in Great Dane size with a kitten right away. But if you're getting a puppy and you already have a cat, guys, let the puppy go to the cat. The cat might scratch the puppy a couple of times. You might hear a little, ah! like, the, you know, puppies tend to overreact to sound like they're dying sometimes when they only just got a little scratch or something like that because they're scared. But let them work it out because what happens is more often than not, is that the dog gets some mutual respect, the puppy gets a respect for the cat, they grow up together, and the overwhelming majority of times you're gonna end up with a dog that will sleep, uh, with a cat that will actually sleep against the dog's belly. They become almost inseparable in many ways. So what happened with this dog and cat is, I am sure that started to happen. Dogs and cats instinctively are licking genital areas, whether it be their own or others, okay? And there's a reason for that, guys. Listen, I. I don't want to get into too much detail about this, but <laughs> there are pheromones, okay, that mammals, all mammals, including us humans, release. And those pheromones attract other mammals to that area, which is why when you see dogs going around, the first thing, what, what are the first thing you see when dogs meet each other? They smell each other's butthole or they smell each other's genitalia. It's a, it's a form of identification, okay? It also shows a form of um, uh, availability depending on the cycle of the animal. So it's very natural. Guys, you know, again, I don't want to get into too much detail. I see there's some ladies on the screen here and I don't want to sound offensive or anything, but you know, that's the origin of oral sex for us as human beings, okay? It's pheromones. I mean, you know, I mean, when, when, when you are, are performing cunnilingus on a woman, it's not just she that's getting the pleasure, there's pleasure that guys get too. There are certain aromas, there's certain things about, so it's a mutual thing because those pheromones are coming back and forth, okay? <laughs> I knew this was gonna be bad. And so this is, you know, animals do the same thing. It's a way of knowing availability of pheromones and it's, and it's pleasurable. And you know what, if it's pleasurable, they're gonna do it again. So it may have started with the cat going up to the dog going, Wow, this smells good. Well, let me lick it. Oh, wait, that's, oh, that's also tastes kind of interesting. That's a, and the dog's like, well, you know, that kind of feels kind of good. Listen, if it's not broken, let's not fix it, baby. Keep on going. So this is what keeps on happening. You know, it's a natural procedure. I try, I try to tell people all the time when it comes to our own sex lives, you know, if we just did what felt good between each other and didn't have to worry about like watching Dr. Phil or Oprah or all these other people telling us what we're supposed to feel and what we're supposed to, our sex lives would be a lot happier. We just got to be with the person you're with and whatever happens between the two of you is between the two of you. That's it. That's yeah. the great thing about animals. That's why we can learn so much about sex from animals by watching them. Why? Because they don't care about the size of things, the frequency of things, the duration of things. If it feels good, they do it. They don't do a comparison. They go, you know what? You're not like he was. No, you just, you focus on the moment. You have fun. The rest of it, screw it. Oh. <laughs> Perfect, perfect way to end that question, uh, Ron. All right, we're going to go to our first listener-submitted question. We, we uh, put some feelers out there uh, from some of our listeners on Twitter. The first one comes from at Allie Dawson 14. Uh, they want to know, is Goofy a dog or a cow, Ron? <laughs> Goofy's a dog. Goofy's a dog. All right. That's, Goofy's a dog. 
Oh, that's, that's, that's the final word as far as I'm concerned. You know how you know Goofy's a dog? Let me give you, get, get it out for you. Cattle, cows do not pant. When you see a dog, that's it. Okay. Yep. Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. We're going we're gonna to throw it to Cat. Uh, uh, she's got a question for you. Go ahead, Cat. Hi, Ron. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I, um, I, have a, I, I, for the, us who aren't, you know, as well off, let's say as Dan and want to help with animals and can't write $10,000 checks every now and then, what is something that we can do, you know, every day to make the world, the planet better for animals, whether it's animals, maybe like in our local community or it's, you know, animals across the world. You know, first of all, uh, it all just starts, you know, with that old saying, act, think globally, act locally. I mean, just basic conservation is one of these things, whether it be conserving water, whether it be trying to convert as much as you can to uh, non-fossil fuels, you know, solar, that type of thing. The, the, the limited use of plastics, man, I can't say enough about how plastics, these single-use plastics are screwing up the world. If you have been able to see what I have been able to see when I travel around the world, literally islands of plastic looking at birds that die because, you know, straws are coming through their neck that they try to ingest. You know, every time I see these shows where you see somebody die and you feel for them, but they all release balloons, Jesus Christmas, one of the worst things you can do for the environment, okay? It's one of the worst things you can do for the environment is just letting balloons, and I feel so badly because these people have such a profound pain, but those balloons have got to come down. Things like sea turtles, all kinds of animals are going to eat these balloons and they're going to kill them. Now we're finding so many dead birds and so many of these antolls around the, the Pacific and such dead with all kinds of microplastics in them, okay, from eating different types of plastic things. So I think that is an everyday use, you know, if you can avoid using these plastic straws whenever possible. You know, one of the biggest things that really burns my cork this is freaking bottled water phase. Holy crap. First of all, I was born and raised in New York. It's the best freaking water on the planet. Anybody who buys bottled water in New York is an effing idiot, okay? So these people are out there, instead of turning on the tap and drinking the great water that we have with our water and sewer systems in most great cities here in this country, they're paying a buck a bottle. Sometimes you go to a stadium and I see them paying four or five bucks for a bottle of water. This is the greatest scam in the world. Not only is it a scam, then you got these plastic bottles these single-use bottles that people say, oh, we're going to put it in the recycle bin. Guys, recycling is not nearly the utopia that people make it out to be. Most of these recycling programs are just not very efficient at all. So things like, you know, getting your reusable water thing so you fill it up and drink that way instead of buying these bottled water things. These things, simple things like that, it's, it's not as much money because trust me, there are enough people in this world who have enough money to provide the money when it's needed I, I would never feel comfortable accepting money from people who work hard every day just to make a living. However, your behaviors and your passion, uh, especially, you know, people like you, Kat, you know, when, when, when and I, I say this with all due respect to your husband there, Steve, you know, when a beautiful lady says something like, you got to do this, people tend to listen, okay? They tend to listen because they look at people like you and they think, oh, you're just into pretty clothes, makeup and all the fancy stuff, you know? When people, and I'm seeing that now more and more in these young generations, which is what's making me so happy. When I speak at schools and universities, it's the kids, it's the kids that are passionate. You know, we hear that old, that old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm one of the old dogs, I understand that, but I'm also a dad. 
And as a dad, I know that there's nothing more important to me than my kids. So if it becomes important to my kids, it becomes important to me. So my mantra has always been, listen, my, my, we might not be able to teach the old dogs, but we can teach the puppies. And the puppies will teach the dogs. And by your behaviors, you know, things like palm oil. Listen, you know, I, I don't want to sound, but palm oil is, I took my wife to, with me to Borneo. And, you know, to see the orangutans in a while and do all kinds of things there, it was one of the most eye-opening experiences because we get into Borneo, as you're flying in, you expect to see all these great forests that you see in Borneo. What we saw, as far as the eyes can see, are palm plantations. Palm plantations went on and on for palm oil, ruining habitat that is killing so many animals. And, you know, guys, what I try to point out to people, and I think I'm preaching to the choir when I speak to a lot of you guys, you know, maybe not either. This is one of the things that I love about Dan, and I told him from day one, I said, Dan, you know, uh, every day I think is going to be my last day on that show, because I keep saying, Dan, you know, you got to stop nailing SPN for having me on the show, because that, that's your boss. And he goes, yeah. So what I appreciate is that I, I have a platform to reach people that sometimes might not be watching National Geographic Channel or the Discovery Channel. And one of the things I really appreciate that we have found through the surveys that we've done with the Levitard Show, and I, and I say this with all due respect, it's has greatly increased the women listening to the show. Okay, that segment has become real, because we find that women tend to be the most compassionate when it comes to the environment, when it comes to wildlife and animals and stuff like that. So, you know, when I get back to the original point of going to Borneo and seeing these palm plantations forever, guys, there's palm oil in almost everything we buy, whether it be soap, whether it be canola, all kinds of stuff. But now you can look at labels and they can tell you whether it is sustainable palm oil or whether it's using a substitute for palm oil. And sometimes, and my wife will be the first to tell you, because she'll come to me and she'll say, oh, you know, this is sustainable palm oil, but it's more expensive than this one. I go, honey, just spend the extra few cents there. A little few cents here and there, it's all supply and demand, guys. As, as soon as the word gets out, they start realizing that more people are buying. It's what happened. You remember when tuna was first lambasted because they were killing all the dolphins? And then they went, well, this is only the dolphin, dolphin safe tuna. And people started paying more for it and stopped buying the other stuff, even though it was cheaper. And the other people said, you know what? We got to do this because they're not even buying our tuna, even though it's cheaper. It's all just a sense of mind. So your purchasing, your purchasing power for your everyday life is one of the best things that you can do to help the environment and help conservation without donating the set. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for that question, Kat. Now I'm going to throw it to your uh, lesser half, worser half. I'm not sure uh, how, what, what the exact title would be. Steve, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, so uh, to piggyback on that very uh, good, serious question, uh, why don't animals need to wipe their butts? <laughs> you know, that's, that's a pretty good question. Generally speaking, it's because they tend to eat healthier than we do. I mean, come on now, I'm going to get really personal here, but all of us have had that really good dump where you sit there and you go, man, I don't even have to wipe my butt. That thing came out there perfectly clean, baby. Just boom, okay? Shows that you're eating well. Things are going well, okay? Um, the fact of the matter is also we have developed an anatomy that creates butt cheeks, which tend to close around our butthole. So sometimes it's a little bit more cleanliness for us because we're putting clothing on. If we weren't wearing clothing all the time and we went around sitting on rocks and stuff like that, it would be a little self-cleaning going on. There, okay. Uh, I know that sounds a little gross, but that's the bottom line. But the reality is it has a lot to do with diet. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to get into detail here, guys, but you know, there's sometimes where one wipe and you're done, and then you're going like six or seven wipes because it just didn't come out all right. 
Right on. <laughs> Good question, Steve. Good question. All right, next we're going to throw it to Aaron in Memphis. Go ahead, Aaron. Hey, Ron. All right, my question is about the – so my mother's family's from East Tennessee, and they always talk about the uh, synchronized lightning bugs out in the Smoky Mountains. <laughs> So I don't know if, if you've ever gotten to see them, but what's that about? Like, what, what, what exactly goes on there? It's all about courtship, man. It's all about courtship. It's literally like a Morse code in light to a, a potential mate to say availability and eager to be with them. Uh, it happens always at a certain time of the year. It's usually around springtime. It happens after certain rains or humidity levels because that is what's conducive to them laying their eggs. Um, is one of the, the wonderful miracles of nature. Bioluminescence is found in so many types of insects. It's found in many fish. Uh, we have found it in so many different animals now, and it's all a matter of signaling to a mate. Um, it, it's, all, it's strictly courtship. It's signaling to a mate that availability is there and the willingness to be there. Uh, about because they're on light levels. Sometimes it's ultraviolet light that we can't see with our human eyes without an ultraviolet light on it. For instance, if you were to catch a scorpion, you can put a scorpion under UV light and you will freak out, man. That thing will turn into purple and orange. It's, it's freaking amazing, okay? Because scorpions can see ultraviolet light. So they'll be able to see those colors. I mean, it's the great thing about wildlife. You know, listen guys, I don't know so much more than I know about animals. But what I do know, every day I learn something new. And these are the things that if people took the time to watch it, you know, and I think today we get a little too caught up in our computers and our television and stuff like that. But, you know, I can tell you that it would be a dream for me to go to the mountains of Tennessee, lay on my back on a spring evening and watch these fireflies. I used to do it when I, uh, my godmother had a lake house in Connecticut. And I remember sitting there along the lake and watching them flying over the lake and all these blinking lights. Man, it was magical. It's something that just, it relaxed me. Uh, I think we need a little bit more of that in today's world. Absolutely, absolutely. Great question, Aaron. All right, we're gonna throw it out to uh, Beep Count. Go ahead, Beep Count. Hey, Ron, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Really appreciate your time. Um, you've talked on the Levitard show about uh, the Animal Kingdom football team. I'm going to have you try and make the Animal Kingdom baseball team uh, using land land mammals specifically or land animals. Uh, right. I think having, you know, birds might, you know, kind of cheat a little bit. So I got you. Okay. Well, you I'm going to tell you that right now I would go an outfield of giraffe. Okay. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna block the fence out there. It works well. They're fast. They can they can you know catch it in their mouth. They got good dexterity with their mouth. Um, my designator hitter is gonna be a gorilla. There's no question about it. The force of a gorilla to be able to swing that bat. When you see a gorilla, I've seen gorillas in a while just take a tree down and take a trunk of a tree that weighs 100 pounds and wing it around like a toothpick. So that's gonna be my designated hitter. Um, my designated runner, of course, is gonna be a cheetah. I'm gonna have him as my designated runner. Uh, my first baseman, you know, my first baseman is going to be an elephant. You want a big target there. Okay. Got the big ears, got a big trunk. You got something good to throw at. So you can have somebody throwing a little wild from short, second or third. So I'm going to have my first baseman as an elephant. Um, gosh, I'm going to go now. So I got three giraffe in the outfield. I got an elephant at first base, my catcher. That's going to be an interesting one to catcher. You know, I'm going to go with a little pygmy hippo as a catcher. Nice, round, good target, big mouth, so he can catch that ball all the time. Little pygmy hippo there is my catcher. 
oh, okay, now we got to go with the, the, the second baseman. Second baseman is going to have to have some dexterity to them. I think I'm going to go with a chimp. I think I'm going to go with a chimp as a second baseman. Got a good, uh, you know, good, good arm there. Let's see what I'm going to go with an arm, though, for a shortstop and a third baseman. Gosh, maybe I should take the chimp and put him on third. Maybe I should take the chimp and go on third because he's going to have the better arm. Chimps can really throw something. Um, I think it's shortstop I'm going to have to have. I still have a good arm. Oh, shortstop and orangutan. Perfect. Orangutan's got that wide arm, eight feet, fingertip to fingertip. That, that, that's perfect. So I got the shortstop, shortstop orang, chimp at second base. Uh, no, a chimp at third base. And at second base, hmm, second base. You know, the thing is here, how do I get the throwing going? Because the throwing is going to be... Um, hmm. They can be anthropomorphic. Okay, let's be anthropomorphic then. At second base, uh, I am going to go with... Hmm, land animal, second base. It doesn't have to be terribly fast. Got to be able to cover some distance. You know, I keep going back to these primates, but I think... <laughs> You know, I think it's second base. I was gonna, I was gonna say a rhino, but it's it doesn't have the left to right. But that's a good charge, but it's not a good left to right. I'm gonna go left to right. Hey, bear. I don't know about a bear. It's, it's kind of slow. Bear's kind of slow. I gotta think about the, the bear is a good thought, but it's kind of slow. I gotta think of something. You know what? We're gonna go with a tiger. We're gonna go with a tiger. Got great cutting speed back and forth. Can do the double very well. Now, the question is the pitcher. The pitcher is gonna be something that's really, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. But, you know, I've used the elephant at first. I would say a pitcher could be an elephant because the trunks, let me tell you, I've seen elephants fling things really quickly. With the trunks, they can really fling it quickly. And of course, you got an elephant at the, at the pitcher's mound, you've got a big blockage there. You can fill the gap between Let's be a little bit more creative. Let's be a little bit more creative. You know what I'm going to go with? I'm going to go with a freaking badger. Because a badger is a mean SOB man. He won't be afraid to, to, to brush him off the plate. He's going to go at him aggressively. He's going to, they're fast. They're super fast. He's a super fast wind up and just, <laughs> that ball come in there so fast. Yeah, I think I'm going with the badger. The badger's going to be at the pitcher. That's what we're going for. So badger, pitcher, pygmy hippo. Catcher, elephant for base, tiger at second base, shortstop is going to be our orangutan, chip at third, and all giraffe in the outfield. That's awesome, Ron. Thank you. Got it. Fantastic answer, Ron. That was wonderful. Okay, uh, just real quick, instantaneously, you probably answered this from a, a, a listener or a caller before. Neutral territory, Siberian tiger versus grizzly. Who wins? Yeah, it's going, to be the, it's going to be the tiger, generally speaking. And I'll explain to you why. Um, grizzly bears are omnivores. You know, they will feed as much on berries and plants and, and fruits and things as they will also be able to kill something like a caribou. But they're not born killers. A tiger is a born killer. It is a yeah. carnivore. Um, grizzlies do have claws. They do have canines. But they do not have the reflexes of a tiger. That's not to say that nine out of, you know, that out of 10, the grizzly's not going to win a couple of them. Sure. But the majority of them are going to be taken by a tiger because the tiger instinctively has bigger canines, more powerful claws, 
and has the reflexes of a cat. I yeah. mean, it's just, it's so fast. Instinctively, it's going to, if it can get behind that grizzly and get him on the neck, it's over. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wonderful. All right. We're going to throw it out to Cody Cavalry, AKA Drake. Now go ahead. <laughs> hey Ron, what is the animal that is the best parent and also the one animal that you would like to see be non-extinct? Hmm. I think the best parent, when you talk about teaching and caring, listen, most animals are great parents. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that there are many humans that could do themselves a favor by watching how animals care for their young. But having said that, the best parent, and I'm not including the dad here because the dad really isn't involved, but the best parent animal to me is the elephant. They're a matriarchal animal. Uh, the elephants, when you've watched them, I've been amongst herd of hundreds of elephants, and I can tell you the way they care for their young, the way they teach their young, uh, whether it be where to find water during a drought, where it be whether to find you know, uh, certain types of food at certain times of the year, they teach their young when, when certain berries are blooming or certain fruits are, are, are coming off on a tree, the way they care for their babies. You know, when you see an elephant being born in the wild and you see the whole family surround and celebrate, it is one of these things that is mind blowing. When you see the tragedy of a mother losing a baby and you watch her and listen to her more, I mean, I've seen this. It's just, it's, it's heart-wrenching. So you feel that, you know, I know people always say, you know, Ron, you're being anthropomorphic when you say an animal can love its young. I've said this on the show before. The fact is, I don't even like that word anthropomorphism because what it does is to me, it suggests that we as humans are the only ones that can love, the only ones that can feel pain, the only ones that can feel happiness or loneliness. And I don't think that's true. I think any of us who maybe had a dog or a cat uh, know that these animals feel the same emotions that we feel. So when it comes to be the, the parent, it's going to be the female elephant, the mother elephant, who just does an incredible job with her cat. And re realize that, you know, she's kept that cat in her belly. The pregnancy of an elephant is 22 months, almost two years. So they have a huge investment in this animal. The baby, when it's born, is close to 250 pounds. So it's a huge investment, and the mother makes every bit the best of it. Sure. And then the backside of the question was, um, oh, what animal animals extinct? Yep. You know, I've said this before, uh, and this is a pretty common answer, I guess, but I'm still fascinated by it. You know, I would love to see a big dinosaur, big Tyrannosaurus Rex. I would like to see how this massive animal literally moves on the earth the way its skeletal design is because it just seems to be like, it's like a kangaroo lizard. It's walking on its two hind legs with these two little feet in the front. This is massive head. I'd like to see what color they are. You know, I think everything you see today in these dinosaurs, this is all speculation. People paint them whatever colors they think it's going to be, but nobody could know the colors that they were. Were, were they like our present-day chameleons where they could change from reds to greens and doing that kind of stuff, you know? Um, love to see the power. Love to see some great conflict between a T-Rex, you know, and a brontosaurus, or whatever it is. I, I just, to look at the size of these animals, when you think about, you look at an elephant, and you think, my gosh, something that's maybe twice the size of an elephant walking like that with massive teeth. And I just tell you, I don't know, maybe it was the Jurassic Park movies or whatever. But for me, that would blow my mind to see something like that come out of extinction. Absolutely. Great, great answer. I think that would have to be mine as well. It just <laughs> uh, something about uh, seeing Jurassic Park when I was a little kid. That would that would be uh, first on my list as well. All right, we're going to throw it to, uh, I don't know if this is the first time he's been on with us, but uh, one of the newer Lauer Rangers, uh, Kij, uh, he's up next. He's got a question for you. Go ahead. Hey, Ron. So you mentioned in the past that you've tried a lot of exotic, exotic foods uh, during your travels, actually. Yeah. And uh, so that leads me to a question for you. Uh, would you ever eat a penguin? 
And if so, what do you think would be the best way to prepare it? <laughs> okay, let me explain something to you. I would, I would most likely not, you know, eagerly eat a penguin. However, if I was uh, being hosted by an indigenous group, uh, you know, in, in, in one of the areas where penguins are found, and this was part of their staple of food, which is what's led me to eat some of the strangest things in my life, because out of courtesy and respect, when you're an invited guest, um, whether you be in a village in the middle of a rainforest or in an igloo in, in uh, you know, Antarctica or something, whatever, um, if, if this is part of a natural food and they're offering it to you as a gesture of welcoming to their home, that's when I would eat it. Um, if I had to prepare it myself, I just bake the hell out of it and pour ketchup all over it to kind of disguise whatever the hell it is. I put ketchup on everything, man. Because when I travel, it started with a, with a trip that I made down into the rainforest of tropical America once. And these indigenous people, they make, they got these huge, big ass maggots. I mean, these were big white worms that they took out of trees and it was a delicacy for them. And they, they, they would just eat this thing and it would pop in your mouth. And it was just like, it was like, oh. I get I throw up a little bit in my mouth thinking about it, but here's the deal. I bring these ketchup packets with me. Whenever I'm doing research in a forest or I'm going into an expedition, I bring these little ketchup packets with me. So I put ketchup on it and all of a sudden I just pretend like I'm eating like an undone hamburger or something like that. And it enables me to swallow it because otherwise, really, I have problems swallowing some of this stuff. You know, they they made me this one type of thing, this big, big black beetle. They put it in oil in a pan and fried it until it popped like popcorn. And then I ate it. And you know, that really wasn't so bad. If you put some salt and some stuff on it, not too bad at all. It, you know, sometimes you get the little legs in your teeth and stuff. But other than that, it's not bad. Uh, I think the only thing that sounds grosser than eating one of those maggots is eating one of those maggots with ketchup on it. <laughs> no, dude, dude, the, ketchup, the ketchup makes it palatable because I, I believe you. I believe you got to have the ketchup on there or I can't do it. I can't. Do it. Oh, First of all, man. the thing is freaking moving in your mouth. Okay. Oh, it's alive. You got to eat it alive. Yeah, okay? yeah. And then you, when you bite down on it, it's like a big zit pops in your mouth. It's just disgusting. There's nothing I can't say. I, I know. I know. I'm sorry, Kat. I'm sorry. I, I've got to forget. I have nice ladies on this thing. <laughs> uh, but that's exactly what it's like. It's just horrible. So when you put the ketchup on it, it enables you to just, uh, just a wet noodle. Just swallow. That's it. All right. Do you gonna... carry um, packets of ketchup for, for those instances? I do. I do. That's, packets of ketchup are the greatest thing I travel with, man. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to uh, another listener question from Dude Goods. Uh, which animal best describes the guys on the show? <laughs> Dan is a big panda bear, okay? Dan is just, he's really a great, great person that everybody loves, but he's very shy. He's not shy behind the radio. He's not shy when he's doing highly questionable of those TV shows, but he really is a quiet guy who, uh, who, who you know, Loves his privacy. The only thing he loves more than his privacy is his family and his wife. But he just, he, he, he's really a quiet guy that way. I'm always amazed when I do the show with him or we do things, you know, together, how he is, um, you know, when he's away from the microphone of the TV. So that's Dan. Stugatz, just a big ass chicken. That's all Stugatz is. A chicken that crows a lot. Says a lot of crap that doesn't mean anything. Um, I love Stugatz, don't get me wrong. But God almighty, if I had to live with that guy listening to that crap all the time, I'd have to hit him. Um, Mike Ryan, you know, Mike Ryan is, you know, what most people would interpret an owl being like, the highly intelligent guy who really is putting all this stuff together. The irony is that owls really aren't that intelligent, but the, the, the image that people have of, of animals, the owl, you know, Mike is really 
you guys have no idea how hard that guy works to put all that stuff together all the time. I mean, you know, he's texting me sometimes at, uh, you know, six o'clock in the morning. You ready? You ready for noon today? Like, yeah, Mike, we're good. We're good. No worries. You know, I mean, he's got to do so many things to get everything ready. So Mike is, is that way. Roy Bellamy. Now, Roy's a piece of work. Roy is, he's, he's a lot of fun. I'm going to go with Roy as being kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know what Roy would be. That's, a, that, 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 that's an interesting one. But Roy, gosh, how, what would Roy be? Roy could be, see, we got Dan as the panda, Mike as the owl. Roy would be, hmm, interesting. You know, I would look at Roy as kind of, he's kind of the leopard, okay? Roy is, is a guy that he's, 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 he's stealth, he's listening, and when you least expect it, he'll throw you out a line that you go, oh, you just got me. Okay, that's Roy. He's, he's very attentive. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, he's, he's quite self-deprecating, which I enjoy with him a lot. And uh, he's just a lot of fun. Roy's a lot of fun. Right on. Well, Cody, you know, Cody is, uh, of course, uh, we saved his ass, so uh, well, Dan <laughs> saved him. So we'll call, we'll, we'll call, we'll call uh, Cody the Arabian Oryx. Almost went extinct, but then he was saved. <laughs> I was going to say rescue mutt. Like the, uh, the, <laughs> wag, wagging, wagging his tail at the, the pound, hoping somebody picks him up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, did you do, did you do Billy? Oh no, I didn't do, I didn't do Billy. Um, Billy is like a parrot. Billy, Billy, you know, Billy's like the parrot. Yeah. Billy's like, Billy kind of throws himself in every time he can. Sometimes he just repeats what somebody else says. Excellent. Excellent. All right. And uh, I believe uh, Tony, he's the, he's the, I don't know how much many interactions you've had with, with the newest member of the shipping container, but I would feel remiss if we left him out. Uh, Cause he's the, he's the new guy technically. Um, who would Tony be? You know, right now, Tony's kind of like the puppy. He's kind of just learning. He's kind of feeling his way through all those things to try to figure out, okay, how, how, how is this going to work? Sure. Uh, I have, I st Tony's the only one I haven't personally met. So, gotcha. um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to say he's kind of the puppy just learning now what's going on and follow the big dogs. Excellent. Excellent. All right. We're going to throw it to John in Miami next. Go ahead, John. Hi, Ron. Hey, John. So um, first, uh, my bona fides, reusable water bottle user. Um, stopped eating those little Jamaican butter cupcakes because they contain palm oil. You're and, the man. Uh, member in good member in good standing of Zoo Miami. My family oh, and I. Man, you're the man. Home. I gotta send you Wonderful a check. Place. You drive electric. <laughs> no, no, please don't. Oh, drive electric. That's right. Um, so I, I was gonna ask a dog poo question and whether dogs are embarrassed by going there, but instead I, I'd rather just ask you to recount a story that I read in the Herald of an article that you wrote about the the Albert and or the oh, contributions Albert, that Sammy. Albert and Winfrey at Sammy. Sam, made yeah. uh, especially during that trying time with i guess it was metro zoo back then but now zoo miami yeah i gotta tell you something guys in my i've been at the zoo now this is 41 years um i have never met a couple like this in my life uh, this is a real serious story and hopefully it inspires you especially now during the holidays about how good people can be um this was right after hurricane andrew 
And I was lecturing, the zoo was destroyed, guys. It was totally destroyed. It's like a plane had crashed into it. It was ground zero. Um, and I was going around just doing presentations to different civic groups around saying, this is, you know, this is what we're facing. This is what we're doing. I never, ever asked for money. I, it's just totally uncomfortable for me to do so. I don't know how to do it. I'm a zookeeper. I'm a naturalist at heart. I'm not a fundraiser. So having said that, I would, I took a bunch of pictures of what happened and I would do these presentations at these different civic organizations. And I was doing one down here at the Rotary Club of Coral Gables, which is a pretty affluent neighborhood. And there was a, you know, a group of about a hundred people in there and I do this thing. And after I do the talk, you know, people come up and they say nice things and it's very, very, very nice. But then there was this elderly gentleman who came walking up to me, kind of shuffling his feet. And I want to be honest, with you, I'm going to be totally transparent with you. I looked at this gentleman. He was wearing clothing that looked like he bought it at Goodwill 10 years ago. Okay. He just, I, I couldn't believe he was here in the Coral Gables area because he looked like, come on, this guy just walked off the street. Again, an elderly guy, probably late sixties, early seventies, comes shuffling up to me. And as these people have talked to me, he hands me an envelope. He goes, I just want you to know that I've been following you on television and such. And I, you know, I'm just really moved by how you care for animals and, and what you're doing. And here's just a little something to help you out. And it was in an envelope that was sealed. I didn't want to open the envelope in front of him. It just seemed uncomfortable. You know, I just, oh, thank you so much. And plus there were a bunch of people around and wanted to talk to me after the talk. So I put the envelope in my pocket. I said, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And I started talking to other people. Well, fast forward, I get back to my office. I'm unloading my equipment. I oh, I got this envelope in my pocket. I open up the envelope. And inside is a check for $90,000. And I go, and I look at the check and it's written, guys, it's written like it was, they took them an hour to write it. You know, it's all like really shaky handwriting all across the thing. And I go, wow, I go, and this is where I'm ashamed of myself. I'm just going to be honest with you. I looked at it and I said, oh, this poor guy, he probably has dementia. You know, he's got that feeling that checks in the book, money in the bank. He probably wrote another check for a million dollars to someone else. I said, what the heck? Let me deposit, see if it goes through. And it went right through. And I was like, well, are you kidding me? I got the reverse from his check. I wrote him in a letter and I said, I cannot, I don't know what to say. Anyway, he wrote me back and he said, all I want you to do is to promise me you'll never tell anybody who gave you this money. And I said, I promise you. And anybody who's ever worked for not-for-profits, I can tell you our development people at the zoo, who is this? Who is this guy? What's his address? What's his phone number? I said, no, I'm not telling you. No, you got to tell us what he means. It's $90,000. We, you know, because these folks, listen, they mean well, but they're like freaking vultures. You know, they call you, hey, can you donate some more? Can you donate? I said, I hate that. I would never put any, you know, that's why I told them, I said, if you ever, if I, I told our development people, if you ever call Dan Levitard or you ever send him a letter requesting money, I will freaking quit this job and I'll call you all out for the losers that you are. So anyway, I never told him the name, but I was so moved by this guy. And this is what happened. A year later, to the day, to the day, a year later, I get a call from the receptionist. She goes, there's someone here to see you. I go, sure, send them back. And here comes this same elderly gentleman with a cane, walks into my office. He puts a $100,000 check on my desk and he goes, thank you for keeping your part of the bargain. And I looked at him, I go, name was Albert, Albert Samuel. I go, Al, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to say. He goes, you don't need to say anything. You need to keep on doing what you're doing. And I go, Al, is there a way I could just meet with you to sit down and talk? I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing with this money. He goes, I'll tell you what, come to my house 
next week, Tuesday, Wednesday. It was always Wednesday. Come to Wednesday at lunch to my house. He gave me the address. Now, I'm thinking that I'm going to drive up to some palatial mansion because the address was in Coral Gables. He lived in Coral Gables, which, again, is a very affluent neighborhood here, okay, in, in South Florida. So I'm thinking I'm going to drive up to one of these palatial, you know, freaking mansions in Coral Gables. I get the address, and I start driving up. And he's living kind of like on the fringe of Coral Gables. I drive up to his house. It's a little itty bitty house made like in the 50s. And the front driveway is an old Datsun, uh, uh, Datsun, Datsun car. I think it was a, uh, I forget what Sentra. it was. A Sentra, a Sentra, a Datsun Sentra, okay? Um, and it's like, a, it's a 10 year old beat up car. And he's sitting on a porch on one of those chairs that my parents used to bring to the beach. You know, they have the vinyl in it, like a beach chair. That's his porch. He's sitting on the porch there in these shorts and a little shirt. And he smiled. He was a tiny guy, maybe five one. And I'm six foot six. So I'm walking up, holy jeez. I walk up to him and he goes, I'm so glad you came. Come on inside. And he opens the door and it was like walking through a time warp. The inside of the house was something right out of the 60s. Everything was pristine. It was perfect. There was a, a general electric radio, like the kind you see, like when they used to do the Orson Welles show. And it worked on this counter here, okay? There was an old RCA tube television, a tube television that you had to turn the knob like into the air remote control. And I'm like in a time warp. And he says, have a seat. And he goes, Winnie, Winnie. And this beautiful woman, I mean, again, in her 70s, comes walking out with the most beautiful crystal blue eyes. And she goes, oh, you must be Ron, with this wonderful Irish accent, deep, deep Irish accent. She goes, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Albert's told me so much about you. And I, anyway, I started talking. And I started saying, Al, I, I just, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I feel, and I told him what I thought when he first came up. I said, Al, I thought that really, that you, and he just laughed. He goes, that's what I want people to think. You know, people, if they think you have money, they treat you differently. And you know, he taught me so many lessons. And he said, why don't you come back next Wednesday and we'll have lunch again. Well, to make a long story short, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the, um, the book Tuesdays with Maury, very famous book, the guy, uh, uh, Alvin, so, right? He wrote the book about it. Well, I had my Wednesdays with Al and every Wednesday I would go have lunch with him and we'd talk. And it got to the point where I was able to ask him, I said, Al, with all due respect, how can you afford to do, you know, he goes, Ron, you know, I did well investing in stocks when I was at a young age. He grew up in New York City. His father was a horrible alcoholic who used to beat his mother. When he finally got old enough, he forced his father out and he helped raise his mother and his daughter. They went through the Great Depression. And he said, Ron, I remember in the Great Depression, when we didn't have two nickels to rub together, the first priority for my mother was to pay the Con Edison bill in New York. She goes, and we had to go to Con Ed, and we'd go to Con Ed, and there was a line of people paying the bill for Con Ed. Even when nobody had money, they put the like, last penny to keep the lights on, to keep the heat on, okay? And he said, so when I, the first time I had two nickels to rub together, I bought stock, one stock at a time in Con Edison. And I created my own tools, and I learned to make my own tools. I was an apprentice in the tools, and I started making a hardware store, and I started selling tools, and I always invested in stock. I never cashed in the stock. I just invested and I always lived within my means. And it was funny because he had like an old Timex watch, the kind of watch you think you buy in a gumball machine, okay? And I remember even his wife would say to him, she'd go, Albert, 
why did you get a new watch? And he would say, he'd open his eyes really wide and he goes, this one works perfectly fine. You know, it was not about being ostentatious. He loved playing golf. He played golf with these rich buddies of his. His golf bag was a big PVC tube that he just threw all his clubs into. And he had an old cart that was like put together from spare parts. And he goes, and he told, and he said, I tell everybody, I just clean airplanes for a living, okay? But he listened, was living off his stocks. He drove that beat up car and he taught me a huge lesson in that, you know, life is not about the car that you drive, the house that you live in, it's how happy you are. He adored his wife, Winnie. She adored him. Um, they didn't have any children. They really didn't have any family. And he loved cats. I took care of his cats sometimes, um, helped him with different <laughs> things. Anyway, over the years, and this went on for wow. 10, 15 years, every year he would give me $90,000, $100,000. I mean, it was over a million dollars at a point. Then he started to get ill. You know, he was in his 90s. And um, he looked at me one day and he said, Ron, I want to ask you one thing. I don't want to die in a hospital. I want to die in my house. Please don't let me go to a hospital. And I looked at him and I said, Albert, if there's anything I can do, I'll make sure I do that for you. Okay. Um, and as he got more and more convalescent, um, I got with his doctor and his doctor said, you know, you really should go to, I go, we want to go to a hospital. Um, I go, is a hospital going to make him live longer? And the doctor said, you know, it may be able to keep him a little bit more comfortable. I go, what about hospice care? And he said, no, that would work. That would work fine. There's, the hospice can do everything for him that the hospital can do. I go, then that's what we want to do because that's, he wants to be in his home, you know? And that's when I got a whole new respect for hospice workers. They are one of the most unbelievable people on the face of the planet. But anyway, he kind of went downhill, downhill to where um, he was going to pass. I held his hand as he took his last breath. I was sitting next to his wife there in his bed in his room. And I'll tell you, the last thing he said to me, he looked at me, his eyes were welled up. He goes, don't ever be afraid to die. There's no pain. No pain, I'm very relaxed. The only thing I want you to do is promise me you'll take care of Winnie, which was his wife, because there was nobody, you know, and they were very private people, incredibly private people. And I said, I would. He passed. I remember the hospice nurse was there. She put a stethoscope on his chest. And I looked up and he just nodded. He said, it's over, you know, and it was one of those things where Winnie looked at me and she goes, is he gone? I go, yeah, he's gone, Winnie. You know, and it, I've never watched anybody die in my life. It's one of the most profound moments of my life to watch that. And from that moment on, I've never been afraid to die myself because it was one of the most peaceful, beautiful transitions I've ever experienced. Now we fast forward to Winnie. And I stayed every day, every week, I'd go see Winnie. I'd have lunch with her. And then eventually she started to get very ill. And she asked me the same thing. She said, Ron. Um, you know, take care of me. Oh, I forgot to mention that after Al passed away, I got a call from his attorney to come down with Winnie to his office. So I don't know what this is about. So I go down to the office and Winnie's sitting there next to me and he goes, I need to read the will. And you're the only two here that uh, Al insisted were here when I read the will. He reads the will. He goes, I leave uh, $200,000 to my wife and the house and the rest of my entire estate is to go to the zoo in the name of Ron McGill under the premise that only Ron McGill can say how every penny is spent. He didn't trust government. Zoo Miami is part of Miami-Dade County government. He didn't trust government at all. He didn't trust boards of directors. He said these are all people that are after their own self-interest, okay? 
Um, so he said that, and that was incredible because I, first of all, I didn't know how much money it was. And then I found out it was over $3 million. And what was incredible was the Miami-Dade County tried to say, well, I don't know, why does Ron have to say I was spent? And the lawyer said, because that's what I'll put in his will. And all the county commissioners looked at me and go, well, that's good job security for you, brother. So anyway, that was, that was a big donation there that I've been able to manage to help just in conservation. And then we also built the amphitheater at the zoo, which is if you go to the zoo today, it's the Sam I Family Amphitheater. I named it after him because though he said, oh, you don't have to name anything after me. One of the things he did tell me later on in life, he goes, oh, it would be nice if somebody knew who my name was after I'm gone because I have no family. Anyway, the same thing happened with Winnie. Winnie started uh, going downhill, got hospice care for her. Um, and it was a little more difficult for Winnie because Winnie went through a, a very small stage, which is called um, terminal, uh, terminal something where they get kind of hostile and angry. And it was very hard for me because I would see her where she, uh, terminal paranoia. She would trust me, but she wouldn't trust the hospice nurse. She was saying, this hospice nurse, she, Winnie never said even gosh darn it in her life. And she would call the hospice, this bitch is trying to steal from me. I go, Winnie, you know, it was not Winnie at all, but it was this terminal hostility that, that the doctors and the nurse told me, don't worry about it. We see this all the time. But what was amazing and something I'll never, ever forget that I'll share with you, because I don't know if I believed it as much as I believe it now. Winnie got to a point where she was really non-responsive. She was laying in her bed, eyes closed, non-responsive. You could talk to her, she wouldn't open her eyes, nothing. She was just breathing intermittently as it was time to go. And then all of a sudden, guys, and I swear to you over my children, she opened her eyes like she was wide awake. She sat up in her bed and she looked straight ahead and she goes, Albert, Michael. She smiled and she closed her eyes and laid back. And I looked at the nurse and I go, the heck is that? And the nurse goes, who's Albert and Michael? I go, that's her husband and her brother, her late husband and her late brother. And she goes, I still get emotional thinking about it. The nurse goes, those are her angels and they've come together. She's seen them and she's ready to go. And two hours after that, she passed. I will never forget that in my entire life. She left her entire estate uh, to me at the zoo to help out with conservation. And that's where the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment got started. The seed money is given from the Samai family and their money will go on forever. Because what I did with that, that money, instead of spending on something, we created an endowment. So that money can never be spent. And just the dividends produced by the investments of that money is what we use to do conservation. And that's what Dan has donated to and other people have donated to. And that's the thing that lives on forever. So I know the Samais live on forever in giving the way they gave themselves in their lives. That was a long story, but I wanted to tell it in its entirety. We, uh, we're better for it. Thank you for, for sharing that with us, Ron. Um, I'm going to, we have a few more questions left. I hope you have time sure. uh, to, to get through these. And I really hope Jeff has something like a poop question or just something completely the polar opposite of that beautiful story you just shared with us. Uh, Jeff, you're up next. Go ahead. Hey, Ron, it's Jeff. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm going to follow that up. Right. So let's see how this goes. Um, so, uh, I have a question, but first I was thinking, um, in light of some of your earlier comments, what if we just made balloons out of turtle food and then when they float off into the ocean, it's see, now, beneficial for everybody. He gets the show. He gets the show. 
Very good. Very good, Jeff. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so recently, and I suppose this is the case for all mammals, or their dreams are going to be influenced by their environment or whatever, right? Recently, my dog, Walter, has just started screaming, basically, in the middle of the night on occasion. It's this, we- he's a German mix, and he- it's this weird, like, <laughs> sort of thing. And it- it's it- it's in the middle of, he's completely asleep. And all of a sudden, it's happening. And I don't know if it's because I've started giving him carrots instead of other dog treats lately, or what the hell have I done to my dog? <laughs> yeah, you haven't done anything to your dog. Dogs dream all the time. We had a schnauzer that did the same thing. You know, you see them, and it's it's kind of like this muted, because they're trying to bark as loudly as they can. Have you guys ever had a dream where you try to scream, and you can't scream, and you just kind of get out of like, eh, and then you wake up and go, oh, shit, what was that? That's the same <laughs> thing that's happening to the dog, okay? The dog is just going, oh, but in really, you're just hearing, Sometimes you see them actually kicking their legs around and stuff like that too. They're just having a very intense dream. All animals do that. So it's nothing that you, and it can sometimes be, uh, you know, uh, inspired by diet. Uh, same thing like with our dreams, you know, sometimes we eat too late or something like that. We have these weird dreams or something like that. Uh, so it can be inspired by diet, but it's not unhealthy for the dog. Dreams are good and they forget them afterwards anyway. All right, right on. Well, yeah, do do uh, consider that pay, uh, the, the turtle food balloon thing maybe is <laughs> moving forward. Appreciate you being with us very much. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure, guys. Honestly, that is kind of a million-dollar idea. Not not bad, Jeff. All right, we're going to throw it to Stupak next. Go ahead, Stupak. All right, everybody asks, who would you take if you like, could create a perfect athlete? So you would take, like, a Michael George's brain or Iris's heart, whatever. So if you could create, like, the perfect – speed or the perfect like animal whatever you take all this dna strands and make like a super gene what animals would you pick and what characteristics would it be wow okay well i would pick the harpy eagle for flight it's like a fighter pilot okay i would pick i would pick a dolphin for brains the intelligence uh the ability to also be underwater so you could be a a harpy eagle and fly underwater and still be able to swim and come out of the water and fly up in the air. So you're a multi-dimensional animal that way. Uh, I would, geez, um, I would, I would pick the, 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 the jaws of a great white shark. Ah, uh, you know what? No, let's pick the jaws of a killer whale because killer whales kill great white sharks. So you got find the wings of a harpy eagle, the jaws of a killer whale, the brains of a dolphin, um, the, ta- the, 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 the feet of an amour tiger, the largest of the tigers. So you got grabbing, the, no, you know what, that's wrong. Well, let's say, yeah, yeah, hold on a second. The back feet of an amour tiger, but the front hands of an orangutan. So you can grab and you can break, but you have those back claws that you can fend off and fight. Um, and then, just the torso of a freaking rhino. You have this power, you can charge through anything. You're a flying rhino that can fight like a freaking whale. You can claw like a tiger, defend yourself, grabbing things with like an orangutan. That would be it. Excellent answer. I'm gonna need somebody uh, with the artistic prowess to uh, actually put that animal together, listen to that and construct that thing on paper. That was a fantastic answer. Great question, Stupak. All right, next up, we're gonna go to our favorite mayor, uh, Mayor Matt down in Georgia, go ahead. 
thank you, Ron, so much for being uh, with us tonight and or on the pod. And I really, it's my favorite segment of the week. I love the passion that you bring to, to everything. It's very obvious. I want to, uh, I want to ask you a non-animal related question and uh, simply just what is the, the best Christmas present you ever remember getting when you were growing up? God, it's going to sound so boring, but it was my first bicycle. I understand that I was a guy who was born in a small apartment in New York City. My father's a Cuban immigrant. My mother's the daughter of a Colombian immigrant. Um, we didn't have much, man. We didn't have much at all. When I got that first new bicycle, I'll never forget it. It was a, a Schwinn bicycle. Uh, and it was, man, I'll tell you, I remember smelling the rubber on the tires was like this great smell. Everything about it. I had that bicycle for many years. As a matter of fact, when I got my first 10-speed, which was a Raleigh, I got that bicycle 50 years ago. I still have it, and it's in pristine condition. Perfect. My, my, mine was a, was called the Green Dragon. I remember my bike, too. That, that's right on the top of the list of mine. So thank yeah. you for answering the question. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Up next, we're going to go uh, to Mrs. Beep. She's got a question for you. Go ahead, Mrs. Beep. Hi, Ron. How's it going? Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good. Thank you. Um, hey, so my husband and I, we have recently brought home two babies with us. And when we first brought home our first newborn, we have a very spoiled dog. <laughs> and we had no clue how to bring a newborn in with a very spoiled dog who was our world for God, I don't know, two, three years. And so do you have any advice for new parents out there? What first we should all, do? First of all, congratulations on being new parents. Kids, we're lucky to have you as parents. Uh, having said that, what I like to do all the time with pets and, and, and new babies coming home, the first thing is I do is I take the baby's blanket, I'll take the baby's, even the baby's diaper and things like that, and let the dog, put it by the dog's bed. Let the dog smell that, okay? Um, these are things now, he may start to eat it, may start to chew it, don't worry about it, that, that doesn't mean he's gonna eat the baby, okay? Uh, these are all smells that you gradually get the dog used to. Understand that, that animals, especially dogs, can be very jealous, okay? They're jealous of attention, but there'll come a time, and you, remember when I told you this, but there's gonna come a time where that dog protects that baby as much as you do. When they understand that it's part of the family and they're integrated to the, to the family the right way and the dog understands that it's a sibling, basically, that the, the, the dog is a sibling to the baby, I have seen that over and over again, where the dog grows up or the dog will end up sleeping next to the baby. The dog seems to inherently know to tolerate the baby pulling on its ears, doing all kinds of stuff, whereas if an adult did it, it would snap at the adult. It'll never do it to the kid because the kid just, it seems to understand it's a kid. Now, it'll get to a point where the kid gets a little older and the dog seems to know, you know what, this kid needs to know better, so I'm gonna scare it a little bit. It might do, it, do a little nip or something like that, but then the kid learns it, oh, I better not do that again. You know, it's just, okay, don't take this wrong, guys. You know, when I come, when I was raising our kids, and we've got two grown kids that are great kids, you know, I remember uh, I had friends of mine that said, you know, you should never yell at your children. Um, you know, you should never, never, you know, spank your children. Listen, I've never hit my kids anywhere except on the two little cheeks of their butt. And I've done that sometimes quickly and instinctively. And I've done that. Why? Because you know what? Again, 
I'm not saying animals should dictate our lives, but you know what? I've seen a lioness with her cubs. And when the cubs comes and starts biting on the ear, or does something wrong, the lioness instinctively goes, Poof, knocks it down. Oh, the cub goes, holy crap, what was that? The cub learns not to do it again. It's an immense, it's an instinctive thing right away. So you should never, ever, you know, beat your kid. I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong. But I've taken my kids every now and then on that two little cushions of their butt and go, don't do that. Okay. And they don't do it. And my kids have grown up to respect other people, to respect rules in the house and understand it. Um, they're, they're, now, there's a point where you don't do that anymore, of course, you know, but I'm telling you that sometimes as a two or one, a two or three-year-old, it's, it's, it's not something that you reason with. You're not going to be their best friend, okay? You need to, to kind of be their parent. And I learned that from the way animals take care of, you know, and then as they get older, they, they need to know there are consequences for different things that are not going to be a little spanked. Um, so your dog may have a couple of times where you, you know, looks a little uncertain around the baby. I promise you it's going to be okay. Um, what kind of dog is it? German something? Uh, Boston Terrier. Oh, Boston Terrier. So you got a little high strung little dog right there. Um, <laughs> He's a tiny little, oh, we love him, but. They're fantastic. They're fantastic little dogs. Um, yeah, and that's even better. You know why? Because these, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smaller dog. Uh, has he been around children at all? No, just our kids. Okay, yeah. so what you need to do is, um, I, I would take him, do you have any dog parks around your place? Um, yes. You know, yes. Now, now it's pandemic. Now we're not doing any of that stuff. <laughs> but as soon as, as soon as things start to clear up, the more you can expose the dog to other uh, children, that's yeah. always better. Um, but with a baby, it's different. I think babies, dogs, just instinctively, I've never had a dog do anything really bad to a baby. They just seem to know uh, that it's a baby. Um, but I've always introduced them, always using like the baby's blanket, the baby's clothing, the baby's onesie, whatever it is. Once the baby's warm, it, put it next to the dog for a while. So it gets used to that smell because babies have a distinct smell to them. Okay. And that, that is a way, smell is such an important sense of dogs. It is everything they use to introduce themselves to everything is a sense of smell. The more you can familiarize the dog with the smell of the baby without exposing it directly to the baby, the better it's going to be when the baby is exposed. Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Excellent. All right. I'm going to throw it back to Lou. He's got something for you, Ron. Uh, and then we're going to round this thing out. Go ahead, Lou. All right, Ron. So uh, we appreciate you being on here. We love having our guests on. And so we try to do something unique, specific for the guests. So uh, while we were talking, I created you a hat and it says, oh. hey, bear. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and so, so what we like to do, I, I imagine I could probably send it to the Miami Zoo and you'll get it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's and great. Then, then all then also what we want to do, so for our listeners out there, uh, once this episode drops, I'm going to put this hat on the site and we're going to sell it and the proceeds that we get from it will donate to the Ron Miguel Conservation Fund. Man, I, I can't thank you guys enough for that. Listen, I, I also want to say something to you guys and all the listeners because I always feel, and I love all these dogs I'm seeing, man. I'm seeing some beautiful dogs on these, on these pictures here. This is fantastic. <laughs> I love the sneaking dog. That's, not, that's my wife when I'm talking to her. Um, First of all, I got to tell you, Lou, you look exactly like Dan's brother. Have you ever seen Lebo? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> Man, you look just like him. It's incredible. Um, but please tell everybody out there, I am the most inept social media person in the world. 
you know, I got a Twitter account because they made me get a Twitter account, but I don't know how to answer Twitter stuff. I'll try to like things if I see them because I know how to do the like, but I don't know how to answer when people ask. And I keep telling my wife, I go, these people must think I'm the biggest a-hole on the planet because people ask me questions and I don't know how to answer them. I just don't know the social media stuff, guys. So I really apologize for that. But I believe me when I tell you, I read this stuff as soon as I can figure out how to navigate to get to it. Um, I'm just amazed because, you know, people come up to me and say, how do you have all these followers? I go, it's all the Levitard show. These are all my Levitard loving guys these are, and girls that are just phenomenal. You guys are the most faithful listeners I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I've done, you know, I do Good Morning America all the time. I do a lot of these national shows. There is nothing that has an impact like the Levitard show. I get off on a plane in an airport in Los Angeles and I have this out of the blue people, man, I love you on the Levitard show. And I go, holy crap, how do you people know this? Dan, he appreciates you guys more than you know. I can't tell you. I mean, we talk about it all the time. I go, Dan, these are the most loyal people I've ever seen in my life. He goes, I don't know where I'd be without. I mean, these are my, these people are my life. And that's why he doesn't give a damn about ESPN or Disney or anything else. He is so committed to you guys in every way that you can imagine. That's incredible to hear. We really, really appreciate your time. And obviously we love Dan, even though he once thought that a penguin was a type of fish. Uh, I will. Somebody, somebody's got a shirt with my face on it. I can't believe it. Steve the cat. <laughs> Holy jeez. You guys are killing me. I can't believe this, man. <laughs> well, hey, I want to are... tell you something. I want to tell you something. Yeah, go ahead. The money that you paid for that shirt went directly into the endowment. So I just want to tell you, thank you very much. That's, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm so moved by it. I can't even begin to tell you. The same is true oh. with Moss Miami, right? Excuse me? The same is true with Moss Miami? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, they, they, those guys are just so generous. They have been so good. Uh, I've just never known anybody like them in that respect. Somebody who's really such a, Dan is, you know, Dan is, is huge. Um, he's one of the most humble, self-deprecating people I've ever met in my life. All right, Ron, uh, that does it for our questions. Uh, on the count of three, can I get a thank you, Ron? One, two, three. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Hey, Bear. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor. Hey, Bear. Thank you, my bad. Hey, Bear. Guys, be safe. Stay healthy. Have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you, Ron. You guys have made it for me. I appreciate it. Bye, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Bye, Ron. Bye-bye. See you at the zoo. Y'all shouldn't have let me ask the porn question, bro. Leave that in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lauer After Hours. You can always reach us on Twitter at Lauer After Hours or Instagram at Lauer After Hours. We're available wherever you get podcasts, so don't forget to download, subscribe, review, and rate five stars. Okay, parachutes ready. Boy, the things I go through to get on all on rates as slow as 0.99% APR for 60 months on new vehicles with PenFed. You are aware that you don't have to be a military member to save hundreds on your auto loan, aren't you? Anyone can join PenFed. As someone terrified of heights, I probably should have looked into that. Probably. Drop me off at the shore. PenFed Credit Union. Visit PenFed.org slash autos or call 1-800-247-5626. Advertised rates available through the PenFed car buying service. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA.